Well, uh, as this week was uh, approaching, I got to thinking about uh, the guy that we're having speaking this morning, and I didn't think I had to introduce him, and then I thought, you know what? It's been a little while. This cat's been gone for over five years now, right? And uh, since that time, uh, there are a number of folks that are probably new uh, to the church and have uh, been attending our church and probably have no idea uh, who Peter Hill is. Right? You hear the name Hill, and you might think, oh, yeah, Tim and Lisa, yeah, uh, he belongs, well, he doesn't belong to them anymore. He belongs to Allie now. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he, he's, their, he's, one, he's one of their children, and uh, he was raised uh, in this church and went through the, the ministries here in our student ministry, and uh, six years ago was serving uh, as an intern. And so uh, uh, Pastor Mark and I had, had a lot of, uh, uh, of input into his life there, and um, it was just a wonderful time of, of learning and growing and building, and, and Pete was able to challenge us, uh, you know, if not more than we probably challenged him throughout that uh, particular year, and it was good for all of us. And, and I want to tell you that uh, if you were here what, uh, six years ago, we gave him the opportunity to, to lead music, which is his strong suit, right? Uh, he really looked forward to that. Um, but I uh, gave him an opportunity to preach, and, and he came up, and, and he preached, and, and he, like 13 minutes later, he was done, right? And, and he had this chicken scratch, you know, handwritten note sheet. Uh, man, he has come a long way. I listened to one of the messages uh, he preached, I think, last week. Was it last week when he did that? Two weeks. Two weeks ago. Uh, on my way to Camp Patmos this last week, and uh, my goodness, the Lord has done a, a number or a work on, on his, uh, his life and, and through his talents and abilities uh, to uh, study and, and proclaim scripture, and I'm looking forward to, to what he has uh, for us uh, here this morning. Uh, so uh, without further ado, Pastor Peter, would you come? I want to brag on you one more time. I had the opportunity to go to this guy's ordination service. Right? And if you know anything about ordination services, uh, you bring up this guy, and he's, he's there at a table. He has his Bible, and then in the auditorium, I had like 50 guys out there pelting me with theological questions, and I had to defend this. Right? That's an intimidating thing. This cat was up there, and I'll tell you, I have been to a lot of ordination services and, and been on the councils and, and just observed. And I can say this with absolute certainty. I'm not just saying it to say it here today. I'm saying it because it's true. I have never seen anyone, even older and uh, you know, longer in the tooth than Peter, I have never seen anybody more prepared and do a better job defending themselves with Scripture than this guy right here. I was incredibly proud. Uh, I struggled with some jealousy and envy a little bit there, I'll be honest, but uh, it was a wonderful time. Uh, this guy knows what he's talking about, uh, and uh, I'm just really looking forward. I pray that uh, your hearts and ears are ready not to hear it now that I'm talking up Pete, not to hear from Pete, though, right, but to hear from God's Word. Would you share from us, Pete? Oh, boy. Um... <laughs> Well, it is good to be home. Um, it is good to be home. Uh, the first sermon was 19 minutes. 19? 19. Yeah, but it wasn't good. Uh, don't listen to it, please. Uh, <laughs> open with me your Bibles. Uh, that's what we're here for. We're here to study God's Word. Revelation 3, chapter, or Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. Um, yeah, it's good to be home. It's good to be with you. Um, this church has helped me so much, and I can confidently say that I was prepared because I was given good preparation. I was given good people in my life, Pastor Chris, Pastor Mark, Pastor Wigan, 
who poured in me when I was younger. Um, and just God has blessed me uh, with good people in my life. But as we turn to Revelation 3, uh, coming home, uh, whether it is to the, uh, visiting the Browns uh, or visiting uh, my family, usually uh, over the course of the, the time we stay, games, we play games. And if you know anything about uh, the Hills, we like to not just play games, but we like to win them as well. Um, yeah, and it reminds me, uh, every, every year we have an Easter egg hunt. Uh, at my grandma's house we go. Uh, it's been happening ever since I was a kid. Now the, the great-grandkids are getting involved. But my grandma still uh, allows us grandkids to participate. And, and what we do, uh, there's a little bit more incentive, though, because she actually puts money uh, in the Easter eggs. And if you get one of the big Easter eggs, there's usually five bucks in there. And so the strategy is to run out, get all the big Easter eggs, and then look for maybe some of the smaller ones. And every time you find an Easter egg, you, uh, before you put it in your basket, you, you shake it real quick because uh, you don't want to hear anything. And um, when I say it gets competitive, one person one year even brought cleats to the Easter egg hunt. <laughs> I did win that year, by the way. So... Um, but as we, as we run around, as we chase around, the, the goal is to find the big Easter eggs. Uh, I don't know who does this, but someone always, every year, it's probably my brother, will crack open the Easter egg, take what's inside, and then throw the Easter egg back on the ground. And so you run up, you chase it, you find it, you grab it, you shake it. Oh, yes. And then later on, you find out it's hollow inside. It's empty. Uh, it's, it's fun to find the egg, but you don't get the prize. Hopefully this illustration actually points us back to a church you guys studied two weeks ago, the church of Sardis, also known as the Dead Church, a church known for its reputation, but lacking in works. And as we come to Laodicea, Laodicea, it took me a long time to find out the difference. As, when we, as we study and go through the passage, we'll see that they were a church that had a great reputation, but no works. And as we see the difference, I think we, we find out the difference between by looking at what the actual city of Laodicea is about. This actually isn't the first time that Laodicea is brought up. It's brought up in Colossians. Uh, Paul actually wrote a letter uh, to the Laodiceans. Uh, he never saw them, uh, but he knew about them and cared for the church there. We know through archaeology that Laodicea was a very prosperous city. Um, the difference between Laodicea and Sardis is that Sardis was known for being great, but wasn't. It had this great reputation of being successful and prosperous, but it had fallen in hard times. Whereas Laodicea was known for its greatness and could back it up. They were a center for banking, and so they were very strong economically. They had wealth pouring out of their coffers. They were also known for their textile manufactories. They're known for uh, a fine black wool that they could produce, again, which led to money. They're actually also known for their pharmaceuticals. Uh, in Laodicea, they produced an a eye salve that could uh, help uh, cure different ailments that you had uh, with your eyes. And so all of these added together led to a very prosperous, a very successful city, a city that was proud of its own name and own capability. And we actually see this play out. Homer talks about uh, earthquakes that happen uh, all, along, all along Anatolia. And Laodicea oftentimes was shaken by earthquakes. And so what happened when these cities were affected by earthquakes 
the government would subsidize the cities to help them rebuild. And so Rome would send them money, kind of like how governments do today. They would send money to cities to help rebuild and uh, get the city back up on, on its feet. But in AD 60, an earthquake, a massive earthquake happened and crashed the city of Laodicea. But instead of taking Roman subsidies, the Laodiceans were like, no, we got it. We're fine. We don't need your money, Rome, because we have so, so much of it ourselves. It was an outshowing of their pride. It was an outshowing of their success, that they were in need of nothing that anyone else could give them. And with this context, let's go to Revelation 3, chapters, or verse 14 through verse 22. It reads, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, Poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Dear Lord, as we uh, come before you, as we seek to worship you through song, and now as we seek to worship you through the study of your word, Lord, be with us. We gather together not to fellowship, not to look good, but to serve and honor and glorify you. So Lord, I pray for this church. I pray for Carol First Baptist, that this church would not be lukewarm, that it would be either cold, or sorry, that it would be hot for you that it would be zealous for you, that it would seek after you. So help us, help me as I speak. I pray that you can give me your words to say and help us now as we study. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. So uh, we'll begin this study as, uh, as you guys have been with first looking at the author. Of course, we know that the author of this letter is Jesus Christ himself. Words are in red, so that's a little helpful hint. Um, And it's written to the pastor or the leader of the church in Laodicea. And it's interesting how God defines himself or identifies himself. And he does it in three distinct ways. We saw the first one, that he identifies himself as the amen. Now, if that sounds weird, it it feels weird saying it, the amen, uh, the amen is in a noun form. That's not usually. We usually say it more uh, verbally. Uh, not this way. 
And usually it's done to conclude prayer, right? I just prayed, I just said amen. Uh, or it's uh, said to affirm a point, to agree. Um, I'm not one who like calls on the church to amen. You can do that if you'd like to, that's fine. But don't worry, there's less homework for you guys. Uh, but, but really it's a term of affirmation. Uh, it's a, it's, it literally means let it be when it's said. So when we pray, when we pray in Christ's name, we are saying to God when we conclude, let this be. Whatever we prayed, let this be. In 2 Corinthians 1.20, it says that for all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him amen to the glory of God through this, through us. And so the amen, when we say this noun, the amen, it's talking about how Jesus guarantees God's promises. By him defining himself as the amen, he's saying that everything that is going to happen is going to happen because of what Jesus, who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. He is the one who is going to bring completion to all the promises of God. He is the one who has the strength to bring it all about. He is the one who is handling it. We see next that he is the faithful and true witness. And this is not just truth speaking. Right, we're trying to teach our son not to lie, but to be honest. He's two and a half, so it's a work in progress. Right, we want him to speak truth. But this is more than just speaking truth. It is truth. Jesus is truth. He is truth incarnate. He's actually the, the physical embodiment of what truth is. He is what everything else is compared to. Right, we see this in John 14, 6. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Revelation 19, 11, Now I saw heaven opened. A little context for this before we get into it. This is Jesus when he's coming to earth again during the battle of Armageddon. Um, this is judgment Jesus, not cross Jesus. So now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness, he judges and makes war. The faithful and true witness is the standard that all others are set against. He is the one that we are called to live like. We are the, he is the one who we are called to be like because he is the standard bearer. He's the guarantor, he's the standard bearer, but he's also, we see, the beginning of the creation of God. And that makes us probably a little uncomfortable upon first reading. Beginning of the creation of God. And it could tell us that, okay, Jesus is the first created one. Now, hopefully we know that that's wrong and incorrect. Um, the Jehovah's Witness uh, used this, along with Colossians 1.15, as uh, verses to say that Jesus was the first created. But a better translation of this is probably the beginner of God's creation, and that's actually what this verse is telling us and what Colossians 1.15 uh, is telling us. That yes, uh, that, that, that Jesus is, this is Colossians, the firstborn of all creation. And then it goes on to say, for by him all things were created. He is before all things and, and all things hold, uh, and he holds all things together. All right? When we see this idea, oftentimes when we think of firstborn or, or son of God, we, we think of less than. We think, obviously, Jesus is less than God. No, no, Jesus is God. And what these titles are, are, what these titles given to Jesus are is actually not 
power discrepancy, but position. That Jesus is the beginner of all creation. You guys studied Genesis recently, right? Genesis 1, in the beginning God created. We jump down to Genesis 1.26. Who created in Genesis 1.26? We created. Trinity. Jesus was there. Jesus created. And now Jesus holds all things together. He is the guarantor of God's promises. He is the standard bearer and the witness to it. And he is the creator God. Here we see Jesus putting down his bona fides. Because who's he talking to? He's talking to a prideful church. He's talking to a church who thinks they have it all and they don't need anything else. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. I am the amen, the guarantor. I am the faithful and true witness. Well, you have to live up to me. And above all, I created it all. I created each and every one of you, church. And how these letters usually go is Jesus introduces himself, and then we see a, a, some praise, some, some attaboys. Church, you're doing this, you're doing really good. Um, uh, we saw that oh, all six churches uh, that you guys have studied all got affirmations, all got saying, hey, keep going. They got commendations. But when we read about the church of Laodicea, this is the only church that doesn't receive any praise. They're not doing anything good. Nothing. Nada. Zero. How sad for a church to be deemed as doing nothing for Jesus Christ. And so Jesus lays it heavy on the condemnation. We see this in verses 15 through 17. Let's just look at verse 15 and 16 again. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Right here, the condemnation is that they are lukewarm. That they're neither hot nor cold. Right? Jesus actually repeats this three times. The repetition is important. He's upset. Jesus is upset. Now there's a lot of different ways that we can actually think about this or talk about this. Some think that it's, uh, this illustration is just a, a play on geography. Uh, there was two towns surrounding Laodicea. One had uh, hot springs and one had freshwater cool springs. And so as water was piped to Laodicea, uh, as it traveled along the aqueduct, uh, over time it would come to room temperature. And no one likes lukewarm water. It's similar to lukewarm coffee. Uh, I, I personally love hot coffee. I can't stand cold coffee. No, no offense. I know people like cold coffee, not for me. But what we can all agree upon is that no one likes lukewarm coffee. It's gross. We literally uh, uh, spit it out sometimes. I do. I don't like cold coffee or lukewarm coffee. And so it's unappetizing. You don't want something that's unappetizing. You want something that you want to drink. Others think that being hot and cold are both good and aspirational things. Hot water helps when you are chilly, and cold water helps when it's hot. And so, church, do something that either helps you provide service to him and to others. But, but some other uh, scholars, um, and I think I fall into this camp as well, that they think being hot is on fire for Christ, being faithful and obedient to Christ. 
while cold, the cold water symbolizes unbelievers who don't know Jesus. Now, what Jesus is saying here is that it's actually better for someone to be extremely cold and to not know anything about me than to know a little bit and not do anything with it. Think about that. It's better for someone to not know than for someone to know and not to do anything with it. 2 Peter 3 tells us, talking about false teachers, for if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Christ, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, so they've come to the knowledge, not a heart change, but a functional knowledge of Jesus and what he's done, they are again, they are again entangled in them and overcome, so that the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow having washed to her own wallowing in the mire. What Peter is saying here is that it's better for these people to have never known anything about Jesus than to know a little bit and then leave. And so I believe Jesus is saying the same thing to these people. To whom much is given, much is required. And we can probably summarize being lukewarm as just simply not caring about Jesus, being apathetic about Jesus and his work. And so because of this, Christ will spew them out of his mouth, literally vomit, literally vomit. We don't like that word because vomit's gross. We can all agree with that, right? Um, I'm, I'm awful with it. I'm terrible. If, if I hear or see someone throwing up, uh, I'm about to follow them in throwing up. I, I don't like it. Uh, having kids has helped a little bit because I feel bad for Allie having to clean up everything. So I, I try. I try. Um, but the grossness is on purpose. This is speaking to how terrible the church of Laodicea is acting of God, Jesus, literally vomiting them out of his mouth. And it's not just the church issue, actually, uh, but a leadership issue as well. Uh, the Greek language is actually uh, is a, a gender language, so that each word is applied to gender, male or female. A lot of other languages are like this. Uh, Spanish, if you know any Spanish, there's gendered words. Um, and as we see the second hot and cold that uh, Jesus is talking about. It actually has gender pointing not to the feminine church. Uh, ecclesia is a, a feminine word, which means church, but rather describing the masculine angel or the pastor of the church. It's not just the people issue, but rather the whole church from top to bottom, from leadership to the person sitting in the pews. The whole ship is on fire and it's all going down. The church is lukewarm. The church is apathetic. The church does not care about the things of Jesus. But how does the church not care? Um, I think it's safe to say the church is, this church, Laodicea is saying, but, but Jesus, I, I think we do care. What do you mean we don't care? We're, we're prospering. We're blessed. We're secure. We're growing. Why are you coming after us like this? By all accounts, we are successful. Well, Jesus gives them an answer. Verse 17, because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Oof. 
What a serving of humble pie. Uh, back to competing. Uh, I like to play pickleball. Um, I know I'm old now, so I can play pickleball. Uh, and I think I'm pretty good at pickleball. Um, you know, I'm, I'm really good at ping pong and sort of good at tennis, and it, it just works. And, but one day, I was bragging, and I shouldn't have been, and a guy at our church has actually dabbled on playing the pro leagues of pickleball. There is such a thing, I know. Um, and so I was like, oh, well, let's play. I'm going to beat you. And I got summarily dismissed. Um, he played with his left hand most of the time. Yeah, yeah, it was bad. I had to apologize uh, and eat a whole bunch of humble pie. But much worse is Jesus saying, you think you have it all, but you have nothing. The church was looking at themselves through rose-colored glasses, gawking at how good they were, astonished at their own level of self-sufficiency, saying, just as Nebuchadnezzar said, for the glory of our own majesty. Compare, compare these guys with the church of Smyrna, who thought themselves poor, but Jesus says that they were rich. Right? What a difference. They were seen as poor and afflicted, but how did God see them? As successes, as what he wants. Matthew 6, 19 tells us, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We jump down to verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. We see that the church of Laodicea did not care about Jesus, and they cared about money, and they could not serve two masters. And, and, and we can see how Jesus is rightly angry. Right? These, are, these are strong words coming from Jesus. Right? And, we, and we see Jesus going from this righteous anger at the carelessness, the apathy of the church, to now looking at them with, with really pity, Sadness. Jesus is grieved by them. Just as an exasperated parent will look on a poor choice done by their child. Because what was their choice in? Or Sorry, what was their trust in? Their wealth? Their prosperity? Their image? Their health? It really comes down to their self-righteousness. They thought they were good enough. Their pride. And they think they can appease God by giving what they can provide. Let's not only point fingers at them, though. We see ourselves as good and worthy, forgetting that God is the one who gives and takes away. And so we seek then to try and bribe God with our excellence, with our good deeds, with what we think as success. And this is not a new idea. In fact, it's it's how pagan worship works. It's how idolatry works. False gods need worship to be powerful. Or so that's what their religions tell them. Um, uh, There's a movie, Clash of the Titans, Wrath of the Titans. They're super big, dumb action movies with awful theology. But a major plot point of these movies is that the Greek gods are losing the worship of the people, and so they're losing power. Baal worship in the Old Testament was predicated on doing the most grisly things to try and hold Baal's attention and to give him power. Mount Carmel, anyone? But on a more typical day-to-day worship of Baal, you have your normal, you know, temple uh, sacrifices. You have them donating money. 
But we forget that Baal was a fertility god. And so Baal worship, right, if you actually wanted to do good Baal worship, is you would go to the temple and you would hire some priestesses or priests and you would help Baal by helping with his fertility. Your worship, worship, was trying to help Baal become more fertile through your own sin and lust. But the very opposite happens when we come to God. God does not become more powerful by our worship. Yes, he's the only one deserving of our worship, but he does not need our worship. Actually, uh, the Bible tells us that instead of needing our worship, God actually condescended himself. He came in the form of the bondservant. Jesus became like us in our weakness so that he could sympathize with us. We see that we're actually called to live in weakness. We're called to see ourselves as weak. In 1 Corinthians, uh, I didn't put my marker there. In 1 Corinthians 2, uh, Paul is talking to the Corinthian church. And right now the Corinthian church is in the midst of uh, severe division. Uh, They're suffering. Uh, and, And when Paul went to them, they didn't really like Paul because Paul wasn't, Paul was not what you'd say a, a great uh, picture of a leader. He wasn't the prototype. Uh, he was very small. Uh, he couldn't see very well, actually. Uh, he was beaten up on all of his adventures. And so when, when Paul comes to them, he, he says in 2.4, my speech, my message uh, were not in plausible words of wisdom. Sorry, verse uh, 3. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. If I came up here shaking, nervous, as I was actually my first message, that 19, maybe it was 13. I, I hope it's 19. I was shaking, literally. I was in fear. I was speaking even faster than I'm speaking now, if you can believe it. But that's the point. My job is to, is to come to you weak, not, not trying to be clever for my own sake, but to give the words of God. So the focus is not on me, but on Jesus And the Corinthians had a hard time with this because the Corinthians too were also prideful. They also loved, they loved them, some of themselves. And so Paul, I love Paul, Paul in 1 Corinthians 4.8 turns to sarcasm uh, on. And he goes in 4.8, I'm going to summarize it a little bit so it's, it's my translation. But he's like, oh, you guys already have all that you want. You have become rich. Why didn't you wait for us? We would have loved to reign with you as kings do. But you know what? Us apostles, we got the short end of the stick. Um, We are sentenced to death. We've become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We have been made fools for Christ's sake. But you, oh, you Corinthians, you guys are wise. We are weak. But you, you are strong. You are held in honor. But we have a bad reputation. To to this hour, we even hunger and we thirst and, and we're struggling We have to work for what we have, working with our own hands. When when we are cast down, when we are reviled, we have to bless those people. When we're persecuted, we endure, holding to the cross of Christ. When slandered, we entreat those people. We have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. 
Oh, if we were like you, being as kings. And Paul's saying, I'm not writing this to shame you Corinthians, but the point of life is not to serve yourselves. In fact, it is to serve Jesus. And so he writes later, I urge you to be imitators of me. To actually be uncomfortable. To struggle. To live in your weakness. While God does not need your power, prestige, and honor, in fact, he doesn't need you at all, he wants you. He desires you. He wants your humility. He wants you to come to the end of yourself. He wants you to trust him, to see that you can't do it on your own because we can't. All of us here sin. We struggle with sin. Nothing we can do can make God, none of us, nothing we can do can satisfy God's justice. We can't pay for it with our money. Our image cannot enhance what God has given us. Our power cannot add to it. Christ paid it all. And he asks us, he asks us to trust him. And so we see that this church was struggling with pride. They thought that they were self-sufficient and didn't need Jesus. And Jesus rebukes them for it and says how you are wretched, pitiable, and naked. But then we see that Jesus doesn't just leave them there, right? He gives them counsel. In Revelation 3, 18 through 20, this is this counsel. I counsel to you, buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that as you may see. So first, buy gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich. Now, Jesus here is not offering a chance to actually purchase spiritual riches. It's not how it works. But rather, it's saying, that it's time to invest. It's time to invest your spiritual capital where it really matters. Will you serve yourself or will you serve me? Warren Wiersbe says that the solution about their spiritual destitution is to pay the price. What is that price? To get true gold refined by the fire suggests that the church needed persecution. The church needed persecution persecution. We see that because of persecution, faith is proved to be genuine. First Peter 4 tells us this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice. Rejoice at those fiery trials, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. What's Peter saying? If you, if you are persecuted, you're blessed because of that, because it proves that the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. Buy white garments that you may be clothed. Being uh, naked at the wrong time and place in the Bible, and even today, our culture, uh, is shameful. Uh, well, less so with our culture, uh, unfortunately. You guys probably all heard the the stereotypical thing in movies or cartoons about uh, a kid going to school, he's nervous about it, and he walks into the class and everyone just stares at him. And what happens? He, he forgot to put on pants that morning. We've all seen them. <laughs> uh, it's not just nakedness, though. Have you ever been uh, underdressed for something? 
Uh, recently, I went to a middle school graduation, and um, which, which was fine. It was at a church. I'm like, okay. Uh, we were kind of late getting to it, and so I had on just you know, a pair of shorts. I had a hat on, um, and I wore my Crocs. And I, and I walk in, and everyone is just like, have ties and coats and long dresses. And I look at Allie and say, oh, sorry, you were right. <laughs> uh, I, it was shameful. I was, I was underdressed, and I felt it. It was humiliating. Um, we need the white garments that God has given us. We always seek to try and dress ourselves. In fact, the church of Laodicea, they were known for their black wool, their black clothes. But rather, it tells us that Jesus wants us in Revelation 19 to be rich in fine white linen because this fine white linen isn't just, isn't just about linen or wool, but it's because the white linen represents their righteousness. It represents that what, what they have been serving. What would your clothes look like if what you've been serving is the color of your clothing? Would it be white? What if the internal became external? Would you be wearing fine white linens, signifying righteousness? Or would you be dressed in all black? We need to be clothed properly. The Laodiceans had access to the finest, these finest black linens, but yet they wanted to dress in their own way. And with eyes, with salve that you may see. Um, in John 9, Jesus heals the blind man. And in this, uh, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they talk to, to this blind man and say, what, what really happened? Were you always blind? What's going on? And he says, it's because of what Jesus has done for me. Jesus, the Son of God. And the Pharisees hate this. Uh, of course they do. Uh, we come to verse 40, and Jesus is, is talking to them. And he says, and some of the Pharisees who were with them heard these words and said to him, are, are we blind also too, Jesus? Are, are we blind? And Jesus says to them, if you were blind... You would have no sin. But now you say, we see. Therefore, your sin remains. The, the church of Laodicea thought they could see. They thought they knew what was going on. They thought they had great vision. But in fact, because they say they see, they are sinful. But Christ gives them the medicine. Christ gives them Jesus. Only Christ can heal the blind eyes. Only Christ can open the eyes of the blind. Jesus also commands us to be zealous. He begins these next two commands, uh, being zealous and repenting, uh, by saying, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. God demonstrates his own love towards us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. But we see here that God demonstrates his own love towards Christians by disciplining them. On the surface, we all give a hearty amen to that because the theory is sound. To get better at anything, we need discipline. We need hard work. We need to struggle. But when it gets practical, when it gets tangible, we recoil because no one actually likes to be disciplined. No one likes having a strong hand put down on them. But yet, many scriptures advocate and show the need of discipline, especially the discipline of God. 
But the Laodiceans, they aren't dealing with hard times. In fact, they're actually dealing with prosperity. They're in decadence. They're, they're successful. What do you mean discipline? Look at us. We're doing well. And in ancient, uh, ancient geopolitics, this idea of decadence was actually very, very mindful. Because empires thought that if we were decadent, we would lose the strength of what actually got us there in the first place. The Assyrians were having this debate when they were conquered by the Babylonians. Then the Babylonians started having this debate while they were being conquered by the Persians. Believe it or not, the Persians had this debate while being conquered by the Greeks. And the Greeks had this debate while, be, while Rome conquered them. And then Rome actually had this debate while the Goths conquered them. And we could go on and on and on. Easiness of life breeds loss of commitment to what is right. And the church of Laodicea is a poster child for that. Life was easy for them. They were just cruising along. And they lost what they needed to do. So the call from Jesus is to be zealous, to, to actually be radical, to, to light a fire underneath you, to do something. And no one likes to be called a radical, right? It's a very derogatory term. And it really sets us apart. A radical person is a person that is set apart, but that's the point of the Christian life. We are called to be holy as Christ is holy. We are called to be set apart unto Jesus. Radical Christianity sounds like a lot, but it's simply being obedient to the Bible. It's simply being obedient to Christ. It'll make you look different if you're willing to let God discipline and rebuke you to it. And finally, we see that they're called to repent. Uh, Pastor Mark has been hammering this point, so we're not going to go super deep on it because I'm also running out of time. But repenting is simply turning from sin and turning to Christ. As we, as we walk in sin, repenting says we stop and we turn around and we walk to Jesus. We're all guilty of sin, but are you guilty of habitual sin? Stuff you always seem to be walking into? Repent. Turn from it. This takes action. This isn't just a mindset. It takes actual doing. Take steps. Be radical. Be zealous. Why? Because verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. We often use this text for evangelistic purposes, but that's not the point of the passage. Jesus here is talking to the church. He's talking to people. He's talking to so-called Christians, and he's knocking on the door. The ESV study Bible says it like this, not a homeless transient looking for shelter, but rather the master of the house coming home. Jesus is knocking not as a homeless beggar, but as the master, as the holder of all creation. What happens though when someone knocks on your door? A lot of times we peek through the curtains to see who it is, right? Uh, when I was younger, I, I never wanted to open the door because who, there's, there's strangers out there. And so I hid away. Or sometimes we don't open the door because our house is a mess. That probably happens more often, right? We don't invite people in because we don't want them to see our, our stuff. When Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and into him and dine with him and he with me. When we let Jesus in, we let Jesus in. We don't just keep him in the mudroom. We don't just keep him maybe in the living room where everything is cleaned up. 
maybe if you're like me, you just shove everything in the closets that you can or in a, in a back bedroom that no one can see. No, if we let Jesus into the house, it's his house. He commands all of the house. He wants all the back bedrooms, all the dark areas to be cleaned out. And he is in possession of all those things and demands all those things from him. Even the closed, locked closets, they are his. So Christian, there is no room for sin in your life. There's no room for it. Christ commands the house. And we see that when we open the door and he comes in, that we have fellowship with Jesus. That's, that's what dining means, is to simply have fellowship. That the creator God would come to us and to want to be with us, want to fellowship with us, it's amazing. But God wants that for each and every one of us. He doesn't need it, but he wants it. He stands at the door and knocks. Will you let him in? Will you let him in? Will you partake in the fellowship that he is here to give? If you are, if you're here today and you're Christian and you're walking faithfully, it says in verse 21, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as also I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. If we are with Jesus and have fellowship with Jesus, that dining will turn into a throne room. That we will rule and reign with Jesus. But remember, it is Jesus' throne. It is his ruling and reigning. And it is up to us to be obedient to him. The church of Laodicea was stuck in their self-pride and self-sufficiency. And Jesus came down harshly on them, rightfully so. He, but he called them to repent. He did not just judge them and leave them alone. No, he called them. He called them to be obedient to him, to be zealous and to come back to him, to purchase the gold that's refined by the fire, to put on the white clothes, to put on the eye salve. And if we do, we will sit with him on his throne forever and ever. But if you're here today and, and you're not a Christian, if you haven't put your faith in Christ, then you won't be on the throne. No, you're the one being judged. You will not sit with him, but you will be set apart from him for all eternity. Humans are eternal creatures. We will live forever. We'll either live forever with Jesus or we'll live forever without Jesus. And so the call is to come today to have fellowship with our Lord and our Savior. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you that we have the opportunity to study your word. And Lord, studying the church of Laodicea is hard because, Lord, we see ourselves in this so much. We see the temptation of self-sufficiency. We see the temptation of pride. But yet, you have called us to humble ourselves, to be obedient to you, to be zealous and to repent. So Lord, I pray that that might be the call for each Christian here today, to be zealous and to repent. Lord, I pray if anyone is here who doesn't know you, that they would be convicted, that they would see that their pride is not enough that their good works are not enough, that they need the blood of Jesus. 
Lord, we just pray and thank you for all that you've done for us. Amen. Amen.